Hello, I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to On Death, the podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts. I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Eric Garza. Eric is a 41-year-old professor, hunter, and suicide survivor. I met Eric online through Primitive Skills and Ancestral Plant Groups, and his podcast, A Worldview Apart, caught my interest for his unique decolonization perspective. He speaks like a professor, and as you'll learn during this interview, has many diverse interests and skills, from bow making to inner tracking. During this conversation, we discuss hunting as connection to landscape, pushing ourselves to take the shot and learn the skills, and the near-death experience of his suicide attempt. Before we talk more about Eric and this really great conversation that we had together, I want to talk about my long-form Sundays posts. These are weekly reflections that I've written from my first anatomy lab of medical school to now the end of my third year, uh, the final clerkship and the final weeks before the end of of this rotation. Uh, you can find these at mnmwod.com. That's Mobility and Mindfulness Work of the Day, mnmwod.com. So a few weeks ago, I published on May 13th, 2018, On Feeling the Burn. This week, I reflected on my experience in the outpatient burn clinic. The learning environment was welcoming, the procedures were very neat, and the patients were a lovely mix of healthy and wacky. Then this most re- recent Sunday on May 20th, Uh, 2018, I published On a Death and a Birth. This week, I reflect on my time with the gynecologic surgery service. For the second procedure of my first day, I assisted with a DNE, or dilation and extraction of a deceased fetus. I explored the emotions I felt while operating the ultrasound, examining the remains, and watching the mother awaken. Again, you can find these reflections in all of their entirety, all 150-ish of them, at mnmwad.com. And you can also find all of the interviews uh, for this podcast there, as well as whatever podcasting app you happen to be listening through. And uh, back to Eric. Eric is a lot of things, a a professor at a university, a hunter, a suicide survivor, and a loving friend to a lot of people. Before Eric dies, he wants to raise a family and to kill a deer with a bow he made himself. When Eric dies, he wants it to be a learning experience for those he is close to. After Eric dies, he wants to have a better understanding of how the universe works and what his place in that was, to know if there's this reincarnation thing, and people who are close to him and had a chance to know him to continue on with their lives as if they matter. And in conclusion, Eric says, I got a podcast. It's called A Worldview Apart. You can listen to it on most podcatchers. I have a website, ericgarza.info. You can find ways to connect with me on social media if you go there. My handle on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter is ericgarza76. I live in the Northeast, so if people are around and ever feel like looking me up and going to a workshop or something like that, always happy to meet folks and chat in person. Online is wonderful in that it creates opportunities to connect with people who are far away, but having face-to-face conversations are always a whole lot nicer. I agree, Eric. So this was, I said, as I've mentioned it before, it's a really great conversation. I had a great pleasure listening to it uh, again to make these show notes. And uh, we also talk about how, uh, you know, for, for his hunting and his, his identity as a hunter, he never grew up hunting. He grew up uh, doing some fishing a little bit, uh, had a little bit of a business there, and we talk about that. Um, but I think it's really interesting that he didn't grow up as a hunter. He didn't grow up hunting. And uh, I relate to that because I didn't grow up hunting either. And I, I'm trying to develop those skills slowly. 
And uh, during the course of this interview, he, he pushes me a little bit to uh, to feel more comfortable to take the shot, to to really uh, push myself to develop skills that um, you need in order to hunt. Because uh, it's something that we talk about in, in that, like, you know, if you purchase a bow versus if you make a bow, um, if you purchase a bow, you skip out on a lot of skills. You skip uh, a lot of the physical practices of making the stave, uh, you know, honing it down, uh, making Making the arrow, fletching it, uh, making the, the the broadhead yourself—all sorts of skills that you skip out on. And uh, along those lines, if you take, uh, if you, if I take a, you know, a couple shots at a target, it's one thing. I'm practicing my, my archery, but I'm not practicing hunting. In that, so if I, if I go out and I try to hunt a squirrel. I have to be quiet. I have to move slowly. I have to be aware of my surroundings. I have to, when I take the shot, I have to really be mindful about the shot because I'm taking a shot at something that's alive and uh, I want to do so with respect. So it's a, it's just a, a really lovely conversation about like really pushing yourself to make, take the shot, learn the skills and uh, develop things that along the way. We also talk about his near-death experience uh, with his suicide attempt. Uh, what the, you know, the, the the circumstances with his, with his depression and and not quite feeling like he belongs along the way um, that led him to that point. And uh, it's just you know, I love talking about near-death experiences. People, they're they're remarkably similar. And people always seem so different on the other side. Uh, we talk about. Um, how he how that near-death experience changed his perspective on death and dying and how it's you know, it can be kind of hard to relate to people who have that who who sustain that fear who haven't gone through that kind of a crucible experience uh and uh how he sees fear in people when they see when they are kind of brushed up or, or faced with death um in a loved one and also how people who he loves and that he knows they 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 are afraid to take up the space in the world to uh, to really be who they are, and it's really 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 great conversation. We talk about some great stuff, and we also talk. Um, he uh, just just I really love this part of the conversation when we talk and when he goes into a hunting story about these two deer that he went after, and uh, just it, you'll you'll hear it, you'll love it. I, I know you will, and um, you know something that we talk about just just the last little bit before before I let you go and listen to the conversation itself is uh, just hunting as a connection to a landscape and uh, to a non-human animals to to trees and to fungus and how that can be something that is not just a you know a, a, a thing that you say but an actual experience that you have and uh, the, these these stories about him him with the deer I think are really great examples of what what hunting and what connection to something that isn't human uh can do to you and and the, the impression that it can leave so i hope that you haven't gotten too bored about me gushing about this conversation you're ready to listen to the conversation i uh, hope that you have some water tea coffee uh oatmeal whatever you want to eat uh or do while you listen to this conversation um hope you have that already uh as you are uh ready to hear eric garza on death It is March 13th, 2018. I am sitting here in my Coopersburg home, and Eric Garza is sitting in his Burlington, Vermont home, and we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Eric, what are the four prompts? The four prompts are uh, I am. Second one is before I die, I want. Third is when I die, I want. And the fourth is after I die, 
I want. Excellent. And how do you finish that first prompt, I am? I am a lot of things. I am a professor at a university. I am a hunter. I am a suicide survivor. I am a, a loving friend to a lot of people. Let's start, let's start with that first thing on the list, the professor at a university. Uh, is, that, is that a trajectory that you had planned for quite some time? Is it, uh, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, I, I guess what you mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by a long, long period of time. I, um, if you would ask me when I was 20 what I would end up doing, I don't think I would have picked college professor. <clears throat> I think that... I would have been kind of fumbling around and trying to decide what that was. But I um, really enjoyed learning and really enjoyed uh, university atmospheres that gave me time to really dig into topics. And so I did my bachelor's degree in biology with an with a emphasis on ecology and evolution. I did work for the Geological Survey, U.S. Geological Survey, for a while after I graduated, and then I went back to graduate school um, just to deepen my studies of, in the environmental realm and uh, studied environmental science, and then ended up going back to, or ended up continuing on to a doctoral program, which is what led me to Vermont. I pursued a doctoral program at the University of Vermont studying, I guess, broadly a discipline that they call ecological economics, which is um, a really big thing. But I was primarily interested in looking at fossil fuel depletion and um, uh, like renewable energy and energy systems. And I think even when I was starting that doctoral program, I did not see myself becoming a professor. I wrote that on my application because you oftentimes have to in order to get accepted to a PhD program because you know, that's you know what uh, a doctoral advisor aspires to is to find you know some of this next great protege who will bring them all kinds of accolades. Um, so I wrote that on my application, but that was really not what I had in mind. And as I got ready to graduate, the University of Vermont reached out to me and invited me to come on as a lecturer. Technically, I am a lecturer. I mean, I'm a professor, but there's a lot of times, types of professors, and one type is a lecturer. Uh, they reached out to me to take a lecture position and teach a, a couple courses, and I thought, oh, you know, over the short term, that's not a bad thing. So I did that, and I also was working on developing a consulting practice at the same time. And then um, the number of courses they wanted me to teach kept expanding, and uh, I'm efficient enough administering classes and also good enough at teaching in the sense that students have a really good experience and enjoy the classes and are also very challenged by them. Um, that I, I decided to kind of stick with that profession for a while and a while kept getting longer and longer and I'm still there. I finished back in 20, 2011 and I'm still at it and uh, you know developing all sorts of other enterprises as a way of creating options if I decide that teaching is, starts to bore me. But, um, but yeah, I, I would say that being a faculty member at a university is 
my bread and butter in terms of overall income stream, and I enjoy it. And maybe a time will come when I don't enjoy it so much anymore. It'll be time to move on. But right now, I uh, I enjoy that that uh, occupation, I guess. Have you uh, and um, does your current lecturing and and uh, professorial studies, I guess I should say, is is that does that still align with uh, the like, environmental economics, or is it a subject that is uh, that has kind of like taken a, a little bit of a tangent from there? It does to an extent. You know, I do still teach broader uh, courses for the environmental program at the University of Vermont. Uh, like right now, I'm teaching a course called Sustainability Science, uh, which is the title of that is is pretty representative of the topics we cover. Mm -hmm. um, I've also I've particularly been drawn into the food realm, though, and the bulk of the courses I teach at the University of Vermont are very food centric. So, food systems is what the discipline is increasingly being called at the University of Vermont. Other places it goes by food studies or you know, courses like these might be taught in like an anthropology program or as part of a nutrition and food sciences program perhaps. And I got drawn into that realm because the consulting work that I started early on was doing energy audits for uh, farms you know, in the agricultural sector. And so, you know, I, I did a, apparently a good job of publicizing some of that work. And so I was invited by the University of Vermont to teach a course on that kind of work and did. And then over the years, uh, from student feedback, uh, primarily I've elected to kind of broaden that particular class that focused on energy use in food systems to just a more, a broader class on, on you know, it's called the real cost of food. We explore, you know, certainly the environmental impacts that go along with food production, but also social impacts and, and kind of the politics of, of food as well. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun avenue that I use to explore um, a topic I'm really, really interested in, and, and we were chatting about this before we started recording, is the whole idea of decolonization and what that means to different groups of people and in different contexts. And so that course is a, is a place for me to explore some of those themes in the, specifically in the context of food. And so I teach other food-related courses. Uh, I'm teaching a course now called Complexity in Food Systems, which is you know, one of the areas I've gotten a lot of training in is complex systems theory and the idea of systems thinking. And so I teach on that and then teach students how to study food systems issues and problems that lens. And then I have other courses on like local and regional food systems. And sometimes I'm um, tapped to, to teach, you know, smaller seminars that are like one-off classes, you know, organized around a particular topic, but then most likely won't be taught again. I see. And uh, talking about food, I think that leads very well into uh, the identification as a hunter, right? Yeah. Uh, what, uh, what is your history with hunting and uh, uh, what is your relationship with hunting now? So I uh, did not grow up hunting. Um, I did a lot of fishing when I was young. That was something that my dad introduced me to. Uh, more as a recreational pursuit than subsistence, although sometimes we did uh, eat the fish we caught. And um, and I did that up into my early 20s. And then as I became a bit more environmentally literate uh, in college, 
I became less enthralled with the idea of relying on meat. And at that time in my life, I was not discerning enough to be able to differentiate wild caught or wild acquired meat versus like confined feedlot meat or farmed fish. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I did not yet have that level of discerning of discernment in my approach to all this. And so I abandoned fishing for a variety of moral and ethical reasons and first became a vegetarian for a brief period of time and then became a, a vegan for a longer stretch of time. Um, but then had, was forced to abandon that for health reasons. My body objected in, in many different ways. And so as it was becoming increasingly clear to me that my body did not work so well without animal-derived foods, um, it forced me to kind of investigate how to eat meat with the least harm. And it kind of forced me to develop a bit more discernment around the broader ethical and moral implications of meat. And I had, um, I've always been interested in like doing creative work, like art artistic work that has practical function. So my first business, which I started probably when I was around 19 or 20 was building fishing rods. So I'd been doing that since I was a teenager. I was very interested in fishing and um, started giving them as gifts to relatives. And they said, wow, you know, you're like really good at this. Have you ever considered starting a business? And I hadn't ever considered starting a business. So I, I, I as I so often do, did it without doing a whole lot of research on how to do that properly within our modern legal contexts. And I had a few stumbles, but eventually got it all sorted out and, um, and, and ran that business successfully in the sense that it was profitable until I decided to stop fishing and became a vegetarian, at which point I closed it down. Um, but by the time I, my interest in eating meat was renewed, I wanted to fish, but I didn't like the idea of using all the like nasty adhesives that were involved in making fishing rods. A lot of uh, environmental pollution goes along with, you know, creating a modern fishing rod and reels and fishing line and all that. So by that time I had become interested in like, I guess I call them ancestral skills, you know, ways that people did things a long time ago, like fire by friction. And I started investigating older ways of fishing prior to the advent of modern rods and reels, and so was interested in that. And that kind of led me to the idea of hunting, of, of making meat aside from fish. And I became interested in making bows. I, I was not, and still am not all that fond of firearms. So the idea at the time of buying a firearm to hunt with did not appeal to me. Um, I, I have hunted with firearms in the past, more recently, but I, I don't own any currently and don't hunt that way. And so I started exploring the idea of making bows, and uh, I probably made a good number of bows and got pretty good at that craft before I felt good enough with my archery skills to, um, to take up hunting. Um, but I hunted for a year back in Indiana. This was the fall of 2006, early into 2007. Indiana's deer season kind of, at the time at least, straddled the fall of one year and early January of the following year. Really nice, long archery seasons. Uh, and then uh, I've hunted almost every year since I moved to Vermont. You know, primarily bow hunting. I did go hunting once with a rifle. 
I'm entirely self-taught. I've never been able to find a mentor, hunting mentor that um, I've been really comfortable with. Uh, and I've taken a lot of small game. I've taken deer with firearms, although I don't hunt firearms anymore, and I haven't taken a deer or any other larger game with a, with a bow and arrow yet. But I will. There's a lot of skill involved in, in bow hunting more generally and in bow hunting with, you know, quote-unquote, primitive materials more specifically. And so I am uh, very, very happy to pay my dues involved in building those skills before I enjoy success. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, something that I see in this story that you've told is, um, is like, like being like, the, the act of killing an animal is like the very top of the of, of the of the pyramid in that like uh, there's so much uh, work that you need to do before and so much work that you need to do after that death. Um, and, uh, you know, it, whether it's bow hunting, it's like, you know, building the bow, practicing the archery, then feeling comfortable enough to go out hunting. I relate to that very much. Like I'm still shooting, I, I maybe shoot a couple arrows in my backyard, um, maybe like a couple times a week. And I'm just like, I still don't feel at all comfortable enough throwing on the broadheads and, and taking aim at a living thing, because I'm like, I don't think I'm, I'm good enough right now to take yeah. its life effectively, you know? And so um, I relate to that very much. And I also admire your, your um, the angle that you take of like, let's, let's build the tool and then use it rather than let's take a tool that somebody has already made. And, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but I think that's a very interesting tactic of, of like let's let's learn this skill from the very beginning of like where do we get the, the where do we get the bow from where do we how do we make the arrows and then and then actually the field craft of of, of stalking and pursuing animals and yeah. then, and then there's also the whole the whole craft of, of being able to uh of field dress butcher and then cook the animal which is a whole whole other set of skills right Yep. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I relate to that very much. And uh, also the, the idea of being, becoming a hunter um, later in life without necessarily any mentors or um, without, without having grown up with it is also something that I find very interesting because if I, I grew up without a, without, uh, with no hunting background. Um, my father wa always wanted to take me out fishing, but he never really learned. So it would be him learning and then teaching us. It was a whole, whole cycle that never really got us out fishing. Uh, that said, um, being go approaching hunting later in life is is a very interesting thing because it's it's like oh there are so many skills that i don't know i don't know how to walk quietly i don't know how to uh sit outside and be patient you know all all of those ancillary skills that go into drawing a bow and loosing it at an animal is is it's so complex and it's so much deeper than just taking aim right yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of threads I'd love to follow up on uh, in what you just said. One of the things is, um, you know, you, you talked about the idea of, of building the tool and using it. <clears throat> and I think that that, you know, I, I have my own podcast and um, I recently had on a woman who lives out in California and we talked about, uh, one of the things that came up is that we talked about alternative motivations that people have in the context of hunting and some people hunt for connection and some people hunt uh, for conquest or achievement you know being able to brag that you 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 shot that you know 16 point buck or you know running it to a, a, a bigger discourse today is like being able to brag that you shot Cecil the lion 
or an elephant in Africa or something else like that, that you don't hunt because you intend to eat it. You just want to be able to show other people around you that, in fact, you did this. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, ever since I became interested in hunting, I don't think I would have articulated it this way to start with. But I have been interested in this idea of hunting with a motivation of connection, of, of using the process of hunting and finding food to build a deeper connection to a place, a landscape. And certainly you can build a certain connection to a landscape by going and buying a compound bow at Walmart or an AR-15 assault rifle at Walmart, for that matter, and going out and, and hunting deer. You can do that, but the kind of connection you build when you do that is very different than from one that you build when you are putting yourself in a position where you, you choose to harvest the materials to make your tools from that landscape. It just it engenders a very different relationship and a deeper relationship. And in, in, in kind of putting out that connection versus conquest, you know, obviously I'm creating something of a false dichotomy, but I think that false dichotomy is, is a useful one to think about in the context of hunting, because when we, when we choose to make certain um, you know, allowances, like when I choose to go and buy, uh, you know, let's take the AR-15 rifle out of this, any hunting rifle out of this. When I choose to go and buy a compound bow instead of dealing with all the other stuff, what skills does that decision allow me to not have to learn? The one thing is it doesn't, I'm not forced to learn trees anymore. I'm not forced to learn woodworking. I'm not forced to learn how to use tools. And there's a whole bunch of movement aspects that go along with that, that my body doesn't have to learn. You know, one of the courses I'm teaching, and this is probably a one-off for this semester, I'm actually teaching a course on traditional bow making uh, at the University of Vermont. And uh, we, uh, not the students and I, because we did this months ago, because it takes quite a while to dry, but uh, another faculty member and I went to uh, an area near the university and they had cut a number of hickory trees to saw for lumber. And we bought one of those logs and split it into staves and got the staves drying. And the students have been turning those raw staves that were harvested locally within maybe six miles of the university into the, the bows that they're making. And none of this, no, that's not true. One of the students had some prior woodworking experience. The rest of the students had none. And what all of the students are learning is that they radically underestimated how physical making a bow actually is. You know, I've actually had to take some of the students to the, one of the physics um, fabrication workshops that we have on campus to use a bandsaw for their bow because just the simple act of working wood is too hard for their bodies. You know, they develop all kinds of blisters on their hands from using a draw knife or even from using a hatchet. And yeah, it's just, it's just a lot harder than they expected. And the need to get this project done in the course of this semester is forcing them to push their bodies far beyond what their bodies are capable of with the experience they have. And, um, and yeah, so like there's a physicality to life that you excuse yourself from 
when you go and decide to buy a compound bow from Walmart. And I don't want to excuse myself from that physicality. Yeah, the, I went to a. Uh, a I got some old decision. And oh, sorry about that. The internet's getting a little weird, so I didn't track that. Okay. Yeah, and I, and I was just gonna say. I mean, there's a there's a, a lot of privilege that's involved in me being able to take the liberties of not excusing myself from that. But regardless, that is that is what I'm doing. Exactly. And uh, along those lines, I went to a Native American museum recently, and uh, I, I was I had the opportunity to uh, practice the atlatl. And it was, it was oh, yeah. so much fun. But I was talking to the fellow there, and he was telling me, like, oh, uh, you know, we tra traditionally these, these, uh, the, the, um, the darts are made out of uh, river cane, and there's no river cane in the area. So uh, you just order it off the Internet and, you know, buy it that way. And then you can make your little thing, you, 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 your thrower, you uh, take a little block, cut it out, use a bandsaw or whatever. And I was like, okay, that's how you can make it, but is that how I want to do it necessarily? Like, okay, if it's traditionally made out of river cane, could I find like a, you know, uh, an invasive bamboo species in the area that would suffice for my purpose, you know, for my skill level especially? Uh, so I, I, that, that level of like uh, what, what skills is purchasing something, excusing me from, really resonates strongly with me. Yeah. And the, the other thing that I was going to follow up before you move on, if, if, if this is all right, is um, you, you mentioned I don't feel good enough as an archer to go out and shoot at a large animal. And so I've had conversations about exactly that with a lot of different people. You know, some people in like the hunter education realm. I, I had a woman on my podcast last year named Murphy Robinson. She and I have co-taught courses on hunting together in the past, and I've taught filmmaking workshops through her um, kind of outdoor wilderness school, Mountain Song Expeditions. And that comes up a lot. And I guess my thoughts on it are when, you know, you don't necessarily, and I would never recommend anyone, you know, to start hunting for large game like deer or bear, certainly not bear with a bow <laughs> as your first game. That, yeah. Uh, moving on from that, I mean, there's a lot of opportunities for hunting that where the stakes are not as high and where you do many broadheads. I mean, it's not hard at all to make a blunted arrowhead, which is a common arrowhead for ages to hunt small game like squirrels or rabbits. And so I see, I mean, there's, there's a when we have a need to develop a set of skills, our body is primed to develop them. If we excuse ourselves from creating that need, we also excuse ourselves from developing the skills. So if you go out with the intention, say, of hunting squirrels or rabbits, even though you're not hunting something bigger like a deer or an elk or a bear that can feed you for months or years, you're still putting yourself in a position where you need to walk quietly, where you need to be a lot more aware of your surroundings than you might be if you were just like hiking. And by making that decision to go out and shoot at a squirrel, you still need to be accurate and your success rate will tell you as you develop accuracy. And if you can get to a point where you can pick a squirrel off of a branch at 20 yards with your wanted arrowhead, 
you're totally ready to shoot a shoot at a deer or even a bear. I mean, if you can if you can get a headshot or even a body shot on a squirrel at 20 yards, there's no large game animal that you can't <clears throat> that you can't get a good lethal shot on. So, so yeah, you know, I'm of the school of thought where I really push people to take your hunter safety classes if you live in a state or an area where you have to do that. Take your archery safety courses if you have to do that in additional. Some states require that. Get your tag, even if all you do is buy a basic hunting license that entitles you to take small game and get out there and do it. And even if you miss every shot you take that first year, you're pushing yourself. And you have to do that if you want to develop hunting skills. I like that idea of like making yourself uncomfortable, forcing yourself to grow and uh, developing those skills by sheer necessity. That is a, I think I needed that little kick in the butt. Good. <laughs> so uh, uh, next up on that list, I think is a, a suicide survivor. Um, and yeah. I want to uh, approach this as as uh, as you as delicately as you would like, um, but I would also like to fold it into a discussion of of religion and spirituality, and asking if you had a background growing up in religion or spirituality. So I did. You know, I was raised uh, in a Methodist household, um, and you know, this was a long time ago, so it's hard for me to know really how devoted my parents were. We certainly went to church every Saturday Sunday. And well, most Sundays anyway. And I, there was a good stretch of my childhood where I was expected to attend Sunday school. Um, as I got into uh, 10, 12 years old, certainly into my teens, that kind of tapered off. My mom might or might not have continued going to church. My dad certainly did not. Um, I was not expected to do that anymore. And so I kind of went through this stage of not of really just like letting go of everything that they kind of had forced down my throat when I was in uh, Sunday school, probably because I didn't have any meaningful connection to it. And so that's where I was in uh, junior high, high school. I guess I, I, I probably didn't have like the sophisticated language to talk about my religious beliefs back then. Uh, I was probably like teetering between agnosticism and atheism. And then, um, and, and I think this, this uh, falls in line very directly with the path that I took towards that suicide attempt. Um, I also had, a, I struggled a lot with social development and I was really socially awkward. I was not a big kid, not a attractive kid by the standards of the day, not a popular kid. And so became very lonely, uh, especially as I was easing into high school. And so that led to kind of the start of depression, uh, bouts of depression. And this was back in the late 80s, early 90s, when people were not as cognizant of this as they are today. And, uh, and I was living in a household where people were just not as empathetic, uh, not necessarily empathetic enough to pick up on all the cues I'm sure I was leaving. And so no one noticed. And then as I ease into college, uh, I was going to a community college. So the first couple of years I lived at home, uh, we didn't have money really to go to a bigger college um, to, to be able to send me to a bigger college. Uh, so I went to a community college. First couple of years, I lived at home. Uh, last bit of that, I was 
um, I shouldn't say community college, it was an extension campus of Purdue University. Um, but first few years I bet I lived at home. Uh, last bit of that I lived as a, I was a caretaker for my grandfather after my grandmother died. So I was living with him. But um, it was, I would say probably a couple years into college that my depression got deep enough and my loneliness got profound enough that I actually went back to religion and Christianity in particular and um, fell in with a gentleman who was a born-again Christian and just kind of followed that path. And uh, I don't have a whole lot of particular memories of all that because um, just by virtue of the way that my suicide attempt unfolded, um, I'm left with some blank spaces. But um, yeah, I, I do have very specific memories of that kind of born-again Christianity kind of taking over my life from an ideological perspective and a spiritual perspective, easing into college. And then I think that fed some aspects of longing that I had, but it also created a much bigger chasm between myself and a lot of the other people that I associated with at the time. So it reinforced loneliness. It certainly didn't help the depression any. And then, um, yeah, at some point I just fell into the downward spiral on account of all of that, that led to the suicide attempt. And what did you, uh, with, it sounds like a, a decade or two of time uh, to reflect upon it. What did you learn from that suicide attempt? Uh, I learned, among other things, how important empathy is and how important it is to connect with people. And since then, you know, I've reflected on this more broadly, and I don't think it was just my inability to connect with people that led me to that place. I think that the whole connection Thing is bigger than just being able to connect with other people, although other people are part of it. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so big on the idea of connecting to landscape and, and you know, other, you know, non-human animals, plants, mm -hmm. and, and really just finding ways as human beings to find roots, to put down roots into a place. Because it was that lack of rooting, of rootedness, that I think also played a big role in the loneliness and depression that I felt and just kind of that void that had opened in, in, in my soul by the time, you know, I got into high school and certainly into college, you know, leading up to that uh, suicide attempt. And it happened back in 99. So yeah, it's been almost 20 years since then. Sweet. Since that point. And um, what is your relationship now with religion and spirituality? Um, spirituality, I'm not, I'm, I'm never sure what people mean by that. <laughs> so when people use the S word, I become, I'm like, my ears perk up and I go like into not like really deep danger mode, but like mild danger mode. Like, okay, someone dropped that S word. What's going on? Um, religion, I'm deeply skeptical of. Um, for all kinds of reasons. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily blame religion for what happened to me. I don't blame religion for my suicide attempt because it was like a piece in that whole 
causal, but it was certainly not a causative agent, uh, at least that, that I can discern. Um, but but I but I, yeah, I guess I've done a lot of reading on religion and the roles that it can play in societies and kind of pushing people to conform and also its role as not just a part of colonization but a driver of colonization and and you know and, and, and you know that whole arena. Yeah, I, I'm very deeply skeptical of religion. And um, uh, one one piece that you had mentioned uh, was the the connectedness and rootedness to not just the landscape but also to non-human animals. I uh, I working uh, going to the hospital uh, most days and just interacting with lots of different types of people of uh, various wildly different backgrounds from uh, very well educated to to almost no education levels. It's it can be I, at the end of the day I'm like I just don't want to deal with any more humans like i just i just want to experience uh to develop connections with like a, with either a squirrel or my a dog or just something that's not human that doesn't have that same kind of energy and it is a it is a, a lovely practice to develop those relationships with plants with fungus with with anything else that's just not other humans because we can get so narrow scoped in that the empathy and sympathy and compassion that we derive that we receive has to come from other humans, but it can come from other sources. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's so useful. You know, we talked about kind of pushing edges in the context of learning to hunt. I think it's also very useful, or at least I certainly find it very useful for me, and have found it very useful for me to push edges with respect to how we think it's possible to empathize with the non-human world. I've certainly had have had experiences uh, where I feel like there has been like two-way empathic communication between myself and non-human animals and with plants. And I have a lot of friends who are involved in kind of the herbalism scene to varying degrees. And a lot of them are able to recount similar experiences. And it's not at all uncommon for me to meet people who, who can recount you know, experiences from their childhoods where they feel like they can communicate directly with non-human animals and with plants. And they don't mean that as a metaphor. It, it's kind of common practice among new agey groups nowadays to kind of talk about Oh, the plant people and the animal people. And certainly maybe some people, for some people who use that lingo, it's not a metaphor, but I get the sense that for a lot of people it is. And I guess for me, it was a, it was a big deal in my own development and my own understanding of the force of connection when I realized after having used those ideas as metaphors, for a long time, but they don't have to be metaphors. That it is possible, you know, acknowledging the possibility that we can, human beings can have two-way communications with plants and animals and fungi and whatever. <clears throat> and I, you know, it was a, a small number of years ago, there was a, a documentary that came out called The Animal Communicator. And it revolves around a woman who is from South Africa named Anna Breitenbach. And you know, she seems to have the ability to communicate with animals uh, empathically or telepathically or however you want to characterize it, I don't know. <clears throat> and some 
of the things that she's been able to do in terms of, you know, working with animals in a therapeutic environment are, are just pretty astonishing. And it's hard to simply discount those as, as kind of like just fanciful. So yeah, I mean, I, I just wanted to add that is that we can talk about communicating and connecting with animals as a metaphor, but we don't have to do that. It, it doesn't have to be just a metaphor. And for a lot of people today, it's certainly indigenous people this is true for, but you know, even many of us who live in kind of quote unquote, the civilized world, um, it's not a metaphor. Mm. And uh, so many, so many good little tangents we could go on. But uh, I want to ask if you have, so you are a professor uh, at a university, you are a hunter, and you are a suicide survivor. Is there anything else on that list of I am? Um, I seem to think there was one more thing. Oh, I think I, I said the last thing was a, a loving friend to a lot of people. So I really don't know what to add about that. <laughs> so how do you finish the next prompt? Before I die, I want. Before I die, I want, um, I think I want to raise a family. I'm single. I want to, and this kind of goes back to, um, our conversation about hunting. I do want to kill a deer with a bow that I've made myself. But of course it goes back to that conversation because I talked about, you know, a motivation for hunting because we want to connect. And also the alternative is we want to hunt because we have this drive for achievement or conquest. And so, that that I want is is probably somewhere in the middle. It's motivated in large part by connection, but acknowledging, but I also want to acknowledge that I do see it as an achievement, even if that achievement represents having reached a certain threshold of connection where something that was previously not possible becomes possible. Mm -hmm. Almost uh, almost less less a conquest and more uh, of a rite of passage almost. Yeah, I can see it that way, a rite of passage or like an initiation into you know, some higher level of connection that was not part of my life before. Mm -hmm. And uh, since we're on this thread, we'll, we'll continue on it. Uh, it's just, uh, it, there's, um, do, you, do you have any idea what that, uh, that hunt would look like or feel like? Do you have any idea how far away it is in terms of time? Um, and like, what would, uh, what would it be like to approach that deer um, after having loosed an arrow at it? Yeah, those are all great questions. In terms of how far away it is, I don't feel like it's far. I mean, I've gotten to a point where I've taken shots at deer with bows. Uh, I did not hit the deer. It was, uh, there were misses. Um, but my field craft is there. The main reason I have not done it in the last few years, I think, is largely out of busyness. My fall schedules at the university in the last few years have been such that it has been really challenging for me to get out very often hunting. And, and living in Vermont doesn't help this because Vermont has a very, very short archery season, just a mm. few weeks. And then there's a late season in December that's open for just a week. So... You need to be, uh, I, I would want to literally take three weeks off uh, so that I can actually participate fully in that hunt. Um, but as a college instructor, I just don't have the luxury of doing that. 
you know, I, I can take, I can skip a class and find someone to sit in for me. Not going to fly if I try to take three weeks off. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, uh, it, it looks like this coming fall right now, I only have one class I'm scheduled to teach. So I've got my fingers crossed that I can immerse myself a bit more fully in the hunting season this, this time around. Um, and I've had some pretty amazing close encounters with deer. Um, you know, one of the aspects of connection that relates to hunting that I've really been pursuing, and this goes directly in line with our topic, the conversations on animal communication. Um, you know, I, I, I've uh, interacted and, and taken workshops with a gentleman a couple minutes, actually, uh, John Young, who's a pretty esteemed naturalist, and Randall Eaton, who um, some of his work focuses on the ideas of rites of passage and the roles that they play in people's lives, especially the lives of boys. He's very fixated on young men in that work. And um, I learned, I was at a workshop that they offered a number of years ago and learned a lot about how some indigenous peoples in North America, but in other places too, um, would engage with animals that they wanted to hunt and kill and use for food. And the idea of, of praying for the animal and asking the landscape to, to give you an animal or asking that group of animals, you know, the deer nation, for example, to give uh, one of their own uh, as food as, as part of this like long-term covenant that they saw themselves as having with particular landscapes. And so the first year after I, the first hunting season after I uh, participated in that class, I used those, uh, some of those techniques, you know, the, the opening day of archery season that year, I asked the landscape to give me a deer and I promised to take whatever I was given. And towards the end of that first day hunting, I was in a small grove of trees, maybe 15 feet across, it was small, out in the field, and maybe about 30 yards away, there was a, a larger forest uh, that spread for miles in every direction. And as the sun was getting ready to go down, or as it started to go down, there was still a fair amount of light left, I saw movement in the forest and saw that there was a big herd of deer walking by. And I looked, and they were far enough away that it was hard to discern if there were any bucks or if they were all does. This was probably early, this was early October, so probably not a lot of bucks traveling with does at that point. Um, but they, I saw them, they were walking along, and then they walked by, and they were never within range, so I never even knocked an arrow. But there was a deer that... that held behind, that stayed behind. It was a fawn uh, that had probably been born that spring. And it walked out into the field between this forest and the little grove of trees that I was in. And I kind of walked out and it was browsing. It was maybe at 25 yards, so not close enough that I would consider taking a shot. And it was a fawn and I didn't have it in my head. You know, I was interested in connection, but there was also an element of conquest that I was after. I wanted a big buck that I could brag about. And so seeing this fun, I didn't knock an arrow, and it walked closer to the stand of trees within 20 yards, and it gave this perfect broadside shot. Um, but I still didn't knock an arrow, and it came closer to within 15 yards, and then it came <laughs> closer to within 10. And then it made eye contact with me. Um, and it, it is one of those times when there's like, 
I feel like there's this voice outside of me that is that I can hear. It's like, what are you waiting for? And so I'm looking at this deer and I tell myself, I am not shooting a fawn. I am not in, in, in different states are different. In Vermont, when you shoot a deer, you have to check it in at a deer check station and trade in your, your paper tag for a fancy plastic tag that you affix to the deer until, it's, until you're done butchering it. And I just said to myself, I am not showing up at the deer check station with a fawn. I'm just not doing that. That is like below me, you know, kind of a conquest thinking. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the deer came closer, you know, it started circling this little grove of trees. It was not leaving. <laughs> we made eye contact repeatedly. And it came within five yards where I had a perfect shot in a little clearing. And I, re and I remembered the prayer that I'd offered that morning that, I, you know, I asked the deer nation to give one of its own for sustenance. And I promised I would take what I was given. And then so that promise ran headlong into this egoistic desire of mine to make a big buck that I could brag about. And long story short, I finally got myself to knock an arrow. I took a shot, the limb of one of my bows, you know, by the time I decided to take a shot, my adrenaline kicked in. I was not paying good attention to my immediate surroundings. The limb of my bow struck a sapling. Everything went off kilter. The arrow went like way above the back of that deer and buried in a bunch of golden goldenrod. And after I took that shot, I reached for another arrow. After I took that shot and missed, I reached for another arrow. Uh, the deer watched me reach for the arrow and then just casually walked back into the forest and caught up with its mates. And that was it. And, uh, and, and yeah, I, I look back at that experience lovingly because it touches on so many of the threads that we've been talking about. And then after that experience, I'm like, wow, this prayer thing works. And I did this every day, specifically asking for like giant bucks, like 14 point bucks. Didn't see another deer until the last day of the archery season. Realized how deep into this whole ego trap I had fallen. And then said, okay, back to square one. You know, offered the prayer just like I did that first day. Promised to take whatever I was given. Went out into the woods. 11 o'clock that morning comes around. I was sitting against a boulder uh, near a power line corridor and um, actually just taking a break. I didn't even really think of myself as hunting. And uh, I heard the birds going nuts, maybe about 70 yards off. I'm like, oh, something's happening. You know, I'm, I'd been interested in bird language. The naturalist John Young is a big proponent of learning how to interpret bird sounds in the forest so that you can understand what is going on, even if it's happening outside of your field of view. So I heard those birds. I knew something was going on. I heard that disturbance coming close to me, you know, following the path that would lead it directly to me. Like, oh, something's coming. Maybe it's a hunter. Maybe it's a coyote. Uh, I did not expect it to be a buck. Because um, I'm not accustomed to hearing birds alarm at, at deer, at herbivores. Um, but eventually I realized that was the case. I saw a buck walking along, you know, kind of paralleling the power line, following me with a variety of birds alarming as it went by. And as it got closer, I knocked an arrow. And then as it got, you know, started to get marginally close enough to take a shot, I looked at its antlers and I realized it wasn't legal. Uh, in Vermont, for a buck to be legal to shoot, it has to have at least three points. And the little spike horns aren't legal. 
And so like, oh gosh, you know, I knocked the arrow and, and just kind of like watched it. And that buck turned at 20 yards and gave me a really nice broadside shot, no obstructions, <clears throat> close to me that my bow might strike or anything. And it, it, I didn't do anything because I can't shoot it. It came closer, you know, 15 yards, it came closer 10, and then it kind of looked at me with that same look on his face that the fun had at the start of the season. It's like, what are you waiting for? With, with maybe a bit more irritation than the fun had. You know, the fun had an innocent, what are you waiting for? The buck was had an irritated, what are you waiting for? And so I didn't shoot, obviously, because it wasn't legal, and it came within, eventually came within five yards, and it kind of put it, gave me a broadside shot, and it just stand there looking at me. And finally, I verbalized, I can't shoot you. You're not legal. And it browsed on grass, like around five yards for a little while, and then just continued walking towards me and literally walked within five feet of me as it went by. You know, we made eye contact a bunch of times, and it could not have not known that I was there. I didn't even have like any camo on. You know, I, I, it was just like me with this beaming white face and eyeglasses, five feet from it, sitting against the base of a boulder. And um, and yeah, so that whole thing, that, those those experiences really intrigued me. And then I fell back into the <clears throat> egoistic desire to shoot a buck, and that was when I bought the first gun and the only gun that I'd ever bought, a hunting rifle, and shot a deer uh, on opening day of rifle season that very same fall. And it was a good experience in some respects. It was also a horrible experience in a lot of other respects. But, yeah. Uh, there's so much. Uh, the the I was I was tearing up with empathy about that story with the doe. It's just like that's such a beautiful lesson that the landscape is telling you. Just like just like, dude, come on, take the shot. Don't yeah. let the ego get in the way. And it's such a it's also a very lovely uh, mirror with that buck because it was like, lost as I can't the the rules that we all made up says I can't do it, so I can't do it. Yeah, uh, which is almost as as real as the the ego, unfortunately, sometimes. Yeah, and it's interesting to me because <clears throat> that buck, well, I shot a deer during gun season that same year, but that buck that I didn't take the shot at because I couldn't was the last deer I've ever seen during archery season on that piece of land. Oh, wow. I have not seen another deer during archery season on that piece of land since then. <laughs> yeah, I have a I have a friend who uh, recently he, he he like had like a month off and he just went to this the same piece of land did a lot of recon this, the year before uh, preseason and uh, he just spent like all day for like three weeks in in a tree stand just waiting waiting for anything and for like the whole season it was nothing and then on the last day he finally got this beautiful buck and uh, it was this heavy thing took him like a couple hours to process and, and pack out but it was just like. If you put the time in, if you really put the effort in, it's like eventually you, the landscape will, will give you what you need, right? Yep. And uh, yeah, it's just such a lovely little story there. And so going back to, your, to, to the desire for a family, um, do, you, do, you, uh, do you know what your... Okay, there, there are a couple of aspects to this. There, there's the partner. Um, and then there's the, the next generation. That, at least that's what I'm assuming you mean by family. Yeah. Um, 
and uh, you, you know the partner like what will what will they look like what will they how will you like what will that be like meeting them and understanding that they're your partner and then there's also the aspect of of the of the of the next generation of of um you know, like we also talked about mixed race. Like, what will that? What will the, What will the race be like? What will um, Will you adopt them? Will you Will you uh, have biological children? All of those aspects. So, what, I threw a lot at you. Wherever you want to, wherever you want to pick up, go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's those are all great questions. And you know, I, I and, and you know, I gather this leading it to my suicide attempt. Uh, social interaction, particularly intimate social interaction, is something that I just really, really struggled with. Um, you know, I've had uh, two relationships that were close enough to become sexual in my life, and a lot of others that I just really struggled moving them towards that level, even though it was clear that the women that I was with were very interested in that. So that is just a huge block for me, and it's why I'm 41 and still single. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, over the last... Uh, 10 years more generally, but specific, particularly in the last five, I've just been doing, investing so much of my time and, and monetary resources, uh, trying to do work in that realm. And I've made a lot of progress. I mean, the people that know me today, like know me as in like face-to-face, -face. if they had known me 10 years ago, I mean, I would be unrecognizable as a person. Um, but still, I have a lot of ways to go. And, you know, I, I was just last night, um, at a, a, I was at a workshop on healing sexual trauma. And, um, you know, just part of the workshop involved talking about that a little bit and, you know, just having reinforced that I've made a lot of strides, but still have such a long way to go. And there's a part of me that is like, you'll never be able to do it. And there's a part of me that says, I can do it if I want to. I just need to find a, you know, find emotional resources to keep, keep, uh, to keep going. And you know, you ask, you know, how will I know when I meet this partner? And gosh, <laughs> if I knew, if I could answer that, that'd be awesome. But yeah, I mean, that's something that I've struggled with is is. Um, you know, developing the kind of empathy to see when someone is interested in that way and invest my efforts pursuing people who have a certain level of interest versus becoming really attracted to someone for whatever reason and then pursuing them even when they are, they are offering all kinds of hints that they're not interested in that kind of relationship. I mean, that is something that I've struggled with and that has gotten me into trouble all of my life. And, uh, and I feel like I'm a lot better at that now than I have ever been. <clears throat> but I also feel like I still have such a long way to go. And finding ways of kind of like retraining myself to not get so attached to people when I start to develop an attraction to them and being able to kind of let an interest in a romantic relationship with someone go. And be platonic friends if that's what they want, or also just to kind of back off and be acquaintances and give them whatever space they want, you know? And then, uh, <clears throat> on the topic of kids, I do want to have biological kids. Maybe that's just like this selfish evolutionary drive, but I do want that. Mm. And I'm open to other things too, but 
having at least one biological child is something that I really deeply want before I die. And being able to give them a kind of upbringing that is not going to handicap them, I, I feel like in the same way that my upbringing did me. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm like disrespecting my parents because they did the best that they could with kind of, you know, the trauma that they carried with them. <clears throat> so I don't blame my parents for you know, who I was early in life and my suicide attempt. They had all the very best of intentions. They had, had no ill will towards me at all. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, my past is what it is. And I don't want kids that I have to end up in a position where they have to repeat that. So doing the work on myself that I need to do so that that doesn't have to happen. Mm. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I, I just I, I see this parallel between uh, you know making the bow, developing the skills, and then having the confidence to take that shot, right? Like there's so much of yeah. that paralleled here in in doing the self work, doing the inner tracking, uh, doing doing the things that you need to do to make sure that you are uh, a worthy partner for your partner, right? And uh, yeah. and then also there's also the aspect of being able to recognize the person, uh, maybe they're the doe just standing there being like. Bro, take the shot, right? <laughs> There's so take much the of that. I mean, come on, it's right here. Exactly. exactly. Life is life is you know, you you are not getting any younger. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I I relate so much to your I, I relate so much to your story. Like I was a very late bloomer. I didn't have my first uh, sexual experience until I was like deep into college. And then I went, and then I just went through this long period of being, of what I call my slutty face. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I found my partner and I was like, oh, this, I, I just kind of knew, uh, with like, uh, with a weird, uh, I've had some, uh, some experiences that have kind of shown me like in, in like a very abstract sense of like how I would find her. And it, it lined up very well with that. And I've, uh, it's just. It's a it's a very interesting thing uh, finding your partner, and uh, I think that you you doing the work and feeling uh, not quite ready yet, but still feeling like I'm, I've come so far is like such a it's such a good sign and it's such a lovely thing to uh, hear hear your story thus far and just imagining where it's going to go in the next five or ten years. Yeah. And uh, so you want uh, a family before you die, and you want. Uh, to take a deer with your own bow. Um, is there anything else you want to, is there anything else on that list? Um, you know, nothing else comes to mind right now. I'm sure I could, you know, toss out lesser things, but those are the big things in my mind that, that I would offer up as answers to that question. Mm -hmm. I mean, family and, and all the skills associated with, with developing a connection to the landscape, like that's pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah, and the family part of it is also about, I think, the development of skills, you know, like redeveloping mm -hmm. the, the social skills and empathic skills that I missed growing up. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's part of, and not only developing them in myself, but creating a scenario where I get to pass those on to people and make sure that, you know, people might, who might have contact with me in a family setting, but maybe even more broadly than that, you know, they, they get to be exposed, you know, to those, like, you know, having a, a, a kid who gets to grow up in a family where mom and dad actually show each other affection and where they can show him affection. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that is something that I did not have when I was growing up, and I want, it seems to me like people should have that, you know, mm -hmm. and that it's a, an important part of people growing up to be healthy people. And I want to be able to create a family setting where kids that I have, or even kids that I adopt, can see that and have that as part of their life. And certainly the circle of friends that I have now, and you know, some of the couples that are having kids now, you know, their kids are growing up in households where you know, parents show each other affection on a regular basis and freely, and they show people outside their families affection, and they show their kids affection, and their kids have the experience of being bathed in affection, you know, not just from parents, but from close friends of the family, and, and even for me in a lot of cases. You know, I've got a close friend of mine, I'm, I'm at their, you know, they're a couple, married couple, I'm at their home frequently, you know, their, their child, her name is Clivey, and I get along really well. And it's clear that to me that that kind of, you know, having broad social connections matters so much to a child's development. Absolutely. How do you finish the next prompt, when I die, I want? When I die, I want it to be a learning experience for the people that I'm close to. I've been really moved by um, Stephen Jenkinson's work. Uh, I don't know if you're someone you're familiar with. Mm -mm. Um, he used to work, he calls it in the death trade. He used to work in palliative care in Canada. And so he kind of led, <clears throat> guided a lot of people as they, you know, after a um, terminal diagnosis, you know, he was the one there to help them and their families cope with their imminent death. He wrote a book called Die Wise, which is a really good book. I've been to a couple workshops with him and met him, and I hope to have him on my podcast. But one of the things he talks about is that a lot of people in, you know, modern civilized society, by virtue of the experiences they've had, as well as a lot of the experiences they've never had and skills they've never developed, are very ill-prepared for their death, and they're ill-prepared to really sit with mortality, their own mortality as well as you know, mortality writ large in a, in a useful and productive way. And um, I would like to create a scenario where the way that I carry myself as I die, and ideally the way that people who are close to me carry themselves as I ease towards that point of death and dying, where we can offer, we can be role models for other people who are having a harder time um, kind of engaging with mortality. I think that's the way that I would respond to that prompt. Is there, uh, is there a, a death that you have experienced that um, you model, that, that informs this, this, this desire, um, whether positively or negatively, one that you learned a lot from that you were like, oh, I want my death to create lessons like this for others. Yeah, a lot, a lot. I mean, I, I'm in my head right now, thinking through all the funerals that I've been to in my family. And, I feel like all of them were 
it was clear that people were having a deep problem. I mean, it's one thing to grieve when someone else dies. I think that's normal and healthy. And I, I want to make that clear. It's another thing entirely to be confronted with someone dying and be struck with fear. And I feel like a lot of the funerals that I've been to in my family, I am surrounded by people who are struck with fear. Mm. When is this going to happen to me? What, what, what happens next for me? You know, do I fall into oblivion? All kinds of questions that people can ask. And you know, I, I guess it's important to realize that I come to this whole conversation from a, a place of deep bias as someone who's attempted suicide, who attempted to take their own life. And so my relationship with death is inherently very different and will always be very different than people who have never done that. You know, because uh, I got to a point in my life where I actively seeked out death. Um, and, and I guess even my own, I, I would even look to my own death as kind of informing this. Um, you know, I uh, have memories between the time that I went unconscious as a result of the suicide attempt and when I woke up. We call it a near-death experience. I have memories of, you know, of looking down as nurses and doctors worked on me in hospital bed and, you know, seeing that whole image further and further away below me you know, as if I were, you know, whatever part of me was still conscious was like rising up. And then I remember reaching like this threshold where I was enveloped in warmth and was able to engage with entities that were existing on the other side of that threshold. You know, me and my anti-religion will not call them like God or gods or anything like that anymore, which is a, a bias of mine. But, you know, interacting with them, and having them kind of replay bits and pieces of my life and helping me to understand why I got to the point where I chose death over continued emotional pain. And then, and, and, and you know, them giving me the opportunity to either pass through that threshold and sever my ties to the real world or having them offer to facilitate um, strengthening those ties and eventually going back into that body. And I chose to come back. And so having been to kind of that threshold and kind of been able to, to I say peer, but I, there was nothing there to see. Um, nothing that I remember seeing anyway, except, you know, the stuff playing out below where people were working on my body. Um, I, I guess I've been to that threshold. And so the idea of going there again is not scary. And of course, this could all be a dream, you know, manufactured by random synapse firings in my brain. Um, you know, but it doesn't feel that way. And so it's hard for me to really relate to the feelings of fear that I see a lot of people embody at funerals. Like there's a, that, that being confronted with um, 
truly like truly with with the idea of your passing not in the abstract sense but in that like in in for you that experiential um decision and uh whether it's whether it is it is a, a literal near-death experience or whether it is a, a sensation or a simulation of death through psychedelics or uh, or breath work or whatever you want to call it um like there there's something that kind of it, it's, it's a very binary switch like it changes you in a way and uh, yes. being, and being able to go through that kind of an experience is uh it informs everything else after in a way that is hard to describe and hard to articulate and um that that fear that i i haven't i haven't articulated it in that way but it is that is the that is what i uh exactly don't want is that that sen sense of over and surrounding overarching fear in others after my passing is is that that sense of fear is so pervasive and it's so hard to um remove unless you create very specific i feel like unless you can create very specific circumstances around your passing and the wake and the way that people mourn or grieve you afterwards it's uh and yeah. i don't i don't have any i don't have very many good models for it and uh, i'm wondering if if you have an idea of how you will reduce that fear in others? Yeah, I mean, those are fabulous questions. Um, and I've not thought that far ahead. And maybe this is my own, you know, ignorance or overconfidence. But I guess, I, I think one of the, I mean, we, we always fear what we don't understand. And so maybe one of the reasons why so many people fear death in the way that I perceive a lot of my relatives fearing death when I see them at funerals is that it's not something we talk about. I mean, there's a deep cultural taboo against talking about death and dying as if it were something that actually happens to people. It's like we're, we're happy to talk about it in the abstract. We're happy to go to a lawyer and write our will, but I feel like, and, and maybe your experience is different, and I very much hope it is, when I broach subjects of death with not all people I'm close to, but with many people that I'm close to, um, I, can, I can broach a subject in such a way that I want us to talk about the death of a specific person, maybe them, maybe me. Uh, I, 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 want to, I broach the topic of talking about death of a very specific person, and very quickly, <clears throat> they want to turn it into a conversation about death in the abstract. They want to separate it from a real specific person or, or scenario, and they want to make it abstract. And that to me suggests that this, this fear of death runs really deep, and it's going to take a lot of time and effort on the part of people to engage with that in a way that to me would allow for a funeral to be filled with people who are grieving, not people who are filled with fear, but who interpret other people's fear as if it were grieving. I mean, I feel like there's grieving mixed with fear. But I feel like in a lot of the funerals that I've been to, all the funerals that I've been to, the fear predominates. And maybe it's always possible that my experience of this is warped for some reason, but I don't think so. You know, I think that as, an, as a person who's developed their own empathy, I feel like my perception that people's fear is the driving force behind behavior at funerals that I've been to 
overwhelms grief. I feel like that that feeling is accurate. And it almost precludes the proper processing of grief and mourning. It does. It does. Um, yeah, I, mean, I can think of specific instances in my own family related to my dad's death back in 2011, where that is exactly the case. And it feels weird talking about those details without having gotten permission from those people, so I'm not. But yeah, I mean, I, I suspect your listeners can probably think of families and deaths within their family or even deaths among, you know, the broader social circle where things like that happen. And people would put off grieving for months or years and suffer the consequences. And people who are close to them would suffer the consequences. Mm-hmm. And do you, have you, uh, have you considered what the, the moment of your passing will look like and feel like? I've considered it. I've, um, I've pledged not to try to script it out mm. because it has been my experience with past family members who died, um, who might have had all the best of intentions when they try to script out how that will happen. It never works out that way. <laughs> and the more tightly they hold on to that script, the faster things went downhill and the harder it was to recover from that downhill travel. So yeah, I, um, I resist the idea of scripting that. It'll happen how it happens. I will, by that point, probably have very little control over that. And um, I would love to create a scenario where the people who will be surrounding me when that happens and I are all on the same page, but I accept that I can't even necessarily control that. So. Hmm. And uh, how do you finish the final prompt after I die, I want? After I die, gosh, that's the hardest one. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's an interesting prompt because it assumes that something of me continues after death, which I totally buy into. I'm cool with that. But it also demands of me that I not just accept that assumption, but that I formulate an idea of what it is that continues of me after death and what the experience of that will be. And I have no idea. I'll fill in the blank. I mean, after I die, I want to have a better understanding of how the universe works and what my place in that was. After I die, I want to know if there's like this reincarnation thing and if there's a way I can come back as something else besides a mosquito. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I could probably make a few other goofy quips, but um, yeah. That is the, the toughest question for me to formulate a solid response to. And I guess I will add one thing. After I die, I want um, people who are close to me and had a chance to know me continue on with their lives as if they matter. Hmm. 
I feel like so many people I meet literally move through their life as if they don't matter beyond whatever value they have as a cog in someone else's machine. And that makes me so sad. Because I feel like, I mean, we, got, we can't all become the president of the United States. Not that the president of the United States is anything particularly amazing, but obviously it's a person who can do a lot of good in the world if they choose to. Um, we obviously can't all rise to that stature. But I feel like the world is the way that it is because so many people refuse to take up whatever space they can take up. They, they refuse to assert themselves in ways that they could. And I kind of feel like the world would be a better and certainly a more interesting place if more people would do that. So after I die, I would love it if the way that I lived my life inspired more people to to continue with their own lives as if they really mattered. It's, that resonates very strongly with me. And the idea that uh, people just refuse to take up their own space. They, uh, they make themselves as small as they can and they do as little as the, the littlest things that they can. Um, it's so, so very true. And there are so many people that I know that I'm just like, I want you to be more. I want you to be you. I want you to really like live it. And uh, it's, it can be, it's so tough because it's like they got to go through their own journey, but it's at the same time, you're like, I just want to shake you away. <laughs> yeah. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? And you can take that, whether it's the earth biome, uh, whether it is the um, humans uh, as a species or, you know, this country as a whole, like however you want to take that. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, first of all, I hate it when people ask me that. <laughs> and so I'm going to say that I am neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I am determined. Mm. It's, it's one of those false dichotomies that I just don't like. Um, I'm determined to make something useful of myself. Um, I'm determined, and this kind of goes back to the whole after I die, I want thing. I'm determined to help as many people as I can who are close to me, you know, influence as many people as I can to try to make something of themselves. I'm determined to do whatever I, what good I can in the world, however hard that might be. Yeah, I am neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I am determined, you know, whatever, whatever the world is gonna look like in a hundred years, um, there's always a possibility that I'll have some, some be able to exert some big influence on that, but, but more likely not. You know, more likely I can influence things in, in imperceptibly small ways, but I'm determined to influence things for the better to whatever degree that I can, in whatever way that I can. And maybe the, the way that I'll influence things the most and the best is a way that I can't even conceive of right now. So, so yeah, that's my response. I love, 
I love sidestepping responses. They are my favorite way to respond to questions because they they show that the the responder is actually thinking about the question. It is my that that is why I like using this question because every once in a while I'll get somebody like you that'll that'll answer it a little bit off in the in the in a way that shows that you're really you you you're thinking about it like you're really responding and I uh, that's why I like that question and I love your response as well and uh, I. I am so thankful we've had we've had this conversation. I've uh, we've never really uh, talked face to face um, and or even through the screen. Uh, we've exchanged some correspondence, but I've been like, this Eric, he's going to be a cool dude. And uh, I think that I I really appreciate the the level of vulnerability that you've shown during this interview. It is uh, commendable, and it is I think the that that this is why I do this in these these interview series is to have people open up and to really show parts of themselves um, in a way that is meaningful and uh perhaps it'll give somebody strength and perhaps it'll uh give somebody a little bit of determination like me to take the shot right and um i just wanted to thank you and i want to give you the the floor uh the last few minutes last few moments to direct the audience directly uh whether it is uh you in you know 10 years after you found your partner and started a family or whether it is a member of your family listening after you've passed or maybe it's just somebody who's trying to pick up hunting and is like, hey, this Eric, pretty cool dude. Uh, the floor is yours. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, so I mentioned already, I've got a podcast. It's called The Worldview Apart. You can listen to it on most podcatchers. Um, I have a website, ericgarza.info. Um, you can find ways to connect with me on social media if you go there. Uh, I think my handle on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter is ericgarza76. Um, yeah, and uh, I live in the Northeast, so if people are around and ever feel like uh, looking me up and going to a workshop or something like that, you know, always happy to meet folks and chat in person. You know, the online is wonderful and that it creates a lot of these opportunities to connect with people who are far away, but face-to-face conversations are always a whole lot nicer. Yeah, and thanks for having me on. This has been fun. I've enjoyed some of your other podcasts. It's a uh, you're doing something that no one else that I'm aware of is doing. And it's always exciting to meet the people who, um, who come up with such innovative ideas and go for it. You know, that they don't come up with this innovative idea and sit on it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's uh, yeah, this is a fun project and I'm so glad that you were able to participate. Yeah, it was my, my pleasure. This has been Eric Garza on death.